a Republican and a Democrat were arguing for preaching the gospel because, get this, Caesar thought that the titles Lord and Son of God belonged exclusively to him. So Paul writes, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish. Actually, poop. In order that I may, be, may be gain Christ and be found in him. Now he is not rejecting Judaism, but his life has a new focus. He has a whole new goal in front of him now that transcends everything that ever came before to be found in Christ and declared righteous before God through the faith of Christ. Not faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ. Christ's faithfulness will declare him righteousness before God. He says, I have been captured by Christ so that, he says, we are called to relinquish all of our old priorities and to pursue relentlessly the thing about which one of them was the most faithful. So the Republican says to the Democrat, I bet you $20 you can't recite the Lord's Prayer. The Democrat said, you're on, and immediately bowed his head and said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord. And the Republican said, dang, I didn't think you could do it, and handed him $20. It never pays to get too cocky when it comes to righteousness. Paul is writing to a congregation in Philippi where people are getting cocky about their righteousness and it's dividing the congregation. They're arguing about which one of them is the most faithful. And the Jewish Christians, which all Christians were Jewish, including Paul, and they did not leave Judaism to become followers of Jesus, okay? So most people in the early church were Jewish and circumcised. But then they started getting converts people who also wanted to follow Jesus, who were Gentiles, who had never been Jewish. And so the Jewish members of the congregation were saying, well, we're better, we're a little bit closer to God because, hey, we're Jewish, we're the chosen people, we've been circumcised, and it was causing a division. And they were saying that the people who had come out of the pagan practices, well, they weren't saved unless maybe they became circumcised and converted to Judaism first that they weren't somehow righteous in the sight of God. So Paul, who is in prison for preaching the gospel, writes them a letter. And he tells them, look, if y'all want to brag about being Jewish, I can out-brag all of you. He said, for example, I was, uh, I'm a member of God's covenant people. I was circumcised on the eighth day, check. He's a member of the house of Israel, check. He says, I hail from the tribe of Benjamin, which had a reputation for being one of the more faithful tribes, check. He says, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews, which means both my parents are Jewish. I'm not a half-breed. And then he says, I'm a Pharisee. That means he's recognized for a strict observance of the law. And he has exhibited, he says, devotion, avid devotion to God, zeal as a persecutor of the church. And to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. This is not a guy who is having any kind of like inner qualms and turmoil about uh, his faithfulness. He's bold. And yet, he says, whatever gains I had, 
These I have come to regard as a loss because of Christ. So all of his, all of his uh, status within the Jewish community, he says, all of that I regard as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's basically taken a profit and loss statement of his life. And everything, all the privileges and achievements and everything in this balance sheet counts as a loss except for Christ and Christ is the net profit. He has given up his career as a Pharisee. He's given up being a persecutor of the church. He's now in prison that matters most, which is resurrection life, so that everything we have, our time, our resources, our work, our status, is now in service to God. That Jesus is the power of the resurrection. That's the beginning of the journey, and his resurrection will change everything in our life. So I went looking outside of my life, for an example, and I came up with Charles Mully. Don't know if any of y'all have heard of Charles Mully. He's from Africa, and Mully was abandoned at the age of six years old, and he was living on the streets with all the other little street kids. He spent 10 years living on the streets, surviving any way he could. I mean, just any way he could, to get food, to find some shelter. But when he's 17 years old, he walks into a church, and he winds up having such a powerful experience in this community, this Christian community, that he converts to Christianity. And after this experience, God prompts him and he walks 43 miles to Nairobi in search of employment. And there just happened to be, because God sent him to Nairobi, some people there who immediately took him into their home and gave him duties like tilling the garden and washing clothes and cooking in the kitchen and all these domestic chores. But they also nurtured him, and as he gained in skills, they promoted him within their farm, and eventually he became the farm assistant. And they transferred him to a farm uh, called Kakuzi where he met his future wife. See, God's just like got a plan in Molly's life. And he meets Esther. In 1970, Molly starts working at the Strayback Road Construction Company. So he just keeps building skills, acquiring new skills, trying new things. He oversees the company's supplies. He remains with them for two years. And with the money that he's earning with this uh, Strayback construction, Molly buys a vehicle, one vehicle he starts with. And he starts operating a public transport service which he then develops into this transportation conglomerate called Mullyways Agencies. Right, by the mid-1970s, Mully's a multimillionaire living with his wife Esther and their seven biological children in one of Nairobi's wealthiest neighborhoods in an absolutely gorgeous estate. But then the narrative shifts. God's still at work. And in 1986, Molly was confronted by a gang of young men who stole his Mercedes-Benz while he was in the city on business. And he's reminded of his early life on the street, and he says, that was my turning point. He saw in their faces, he said, in their faces, I saw myself. And God began to trouble his spirit about his prosperity and his wealth and how he was doing. And he said, I was no longer like content anymore to have wealth or status. And he felt God calling him to become the father to the fatherless. 
Molly takes God seriously. When God prompts him, when he feels that nudge of the Spirit, he always acts on it, even though people around him think he's absolutely crazy. His wife is not thrilled with the idea of giving up their comfortable way of life, and his friends think he's nuts, but Molly's got this new focus. So he starts going into the city and rounding up. It takes a while to build their trust, but he understands them. He starts working with the youth and the children in the city there, and he rounds up these street urchins, and he begins to bring them home. And he tells them that they're now his family, that he's going to be their family, and he will care for them. And before you know it, there's a hundred kids at their house. And he and the older ones are building cabins in the backyard, you know, with bunk beds to house more and more children. And he keeps going into the city and bringing more home. So having to feed them and his wife's up trying to make clothes for them. And people are grumbling a little bit. And then it gets to be too much. And in 1989, he sells all of his businesses off and begins bringing even more orphans from Kenya's slums to his estate. And they were working together, they're raising food, they're building the lodging, they're caring for one another. They soon have more than 100 children living there. So they need more room. God tells Molly to sell his estate. His wife's not real keen on the idea. But he went out and sold the house, the land, everything, this gorgeous place. And God tells him where to buy land. God sends him outside of Nairobi, of, uh, of uh, Indalani in Kenya. And there's this cheap piece of land. It's like arid, desert-like. Nothing's growing on this land but scrub brush, right? And everybody thinks he's nuts, but God says, buy this land. So he does sells everything, buys that land, and then after the sale is complete, they discover that that land is sitting on a rich source of water, underground water. They begin to pump it up. Today, that land is completely self-sustaining. It's a 503-acre farm. It has its own microclimate. They've changed the climate over that land by the farming techniques they've used. They have man-made dams. They have two million trees. They have vegetables, onions, eggplants, spinach, corn. They're providing these and selling these to domestic and international markets. It's this huge operation. And it's now called Molly's Children's Family, MCF, which is this Christian non-governmental organization based in Kenya. By 1995, Molly's family his children include 320 people. That's a lot of kids. And by 2009, Charles Mully and his wife Esther have taken in more than 23,000 abandoned children. 23,000. MCF, this Mully's Children's Family, is now the largest children's rehabilitation organization in Africa. It has not just that location, but five other sister locations. And the orphans are not only housed and fed, but they're educated, kindergarten through high school. And then if they want to go on to university and higher education, they provide all of that as well. More than 13,000 of those kids have gone on to become doctors, engineers, scientists, teachers, and lawyers. And guess what? They were all raised 
Christian, learning how through Molly to follow God. And so they're all now investing their knowledge back into this program, expanding the programs, so that now the education is expanding and there's a future leaders program and a youth mentoring program and a coaching teeter, teaching leadership and entrepreneurial skills program. And they have student internships and they have volunteer programs and they have health care programs with free medical care, comprehensive HIV and AIDS treatment, free medical camps. All of this is part of the MCF. They work to provide the children in the communities they serve with safe and nutritious food to eat and they offer a school feeding program, dry land farming programs, emergency relief food distribution programs, water harvesting and conservation programs for irrigation. They distribute milk goats to communities. They teach livestock farming and they're globally certified for export. They provide clean water and sanitation conservation, distribution, they construct latrines. They have enhanced access to justice for women and children. Those that grew up in the family and became attorneys are now civil rights lawyers and they are um, establishing child and gender protection units and desks in police stations and child rights education and jobs for women and youth. And they participate in policy formulation and implementation. I mean, it's just stunning what this one man did, but he left everything, lost everything, counted all of his gains in life as a loss because he wanted to just know and follow Jesus Christ. Hayes made a documentary about Molly, and he says, these kids had no hope. There was no future tense in their vocabulary. And then there's this guy, Molly, who comes into the slums and says, I got you. And he saves their lives. We may not be called to do what Molly did. God uniquely equipped Molly with his entrepreneurial spirit and his early childhood experiences to be in a position to do the things he did. But God has also uniquely equipped us for the things that God calls us to. And if we're willing to just risk and trust even a little bit, it is mind-blowing what God can accomplish through us. Nothing less than resurrection life. Amen.